Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before we get started with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. 200 detainees on Rikers Island have begun a hunger strike in protest of the horrid conditions and the lack of basic services in the jail, drawing attention to the long-standing issues within the troubled city jail system. Chris Boyle, the Director of Data Research and Policy with the New York County Defender Services, explained the situation at a City Board of Corrections meeting last Tuesday. As the protest went on, Boyle said, an officer asked the detainees, quote, do you want food? Because we're not going to bring it if you don't want it. They said, no, we don't want it, and he walked out, so no food is being brought in right now, unquote. In voicemails to the Daily News, detainees described their reasons for the strike. Detainee Irvin Bowens said, quote, this is very important. Right now, my unit, we're on a hunger strike. We have a list of reasonable things that we would like to get on the table so that we can get things rolling, such as a law library, recreation and mental health and medical, and stuff like that. We're just asking for a little help, unquote. Another detainee explained that inmates aren't receiving mail, any rec time outside, or medical services. He said, quote, This continues to linger months and months on end. We are currently on 24-7 lockdown, and we've been isolated for 15 days and counting. Court dates and hearings are constantly being adjourned, motions and bail hearings as well. We are not receiving communications in a timely fashion as well. We're basically here, stuck in limbo. The city is still open for business, but Rikers Island is closed. We are not getting any visits or lawyer visits, which has continued to hinder our due process as well." Unquote. Boyle himself has received voicemails from 15 detainees. He said, quote, "...they are at a point where they feel they have no other options. As of last night, they had missed their 12th meal, and no one seems to care." Unquote. Advocates for inmates at the Bedford Hills Correctional Facility are calling for Governor Kathy Hochul to step in, as COVID-19 spreads quickly among inmates and employees. Serena Martin-Ligori, the executive director for New Hour for Women and Children, says the number of cases among inmates is close to 70. She's asking Governor Hochul to grant clemency for some of the women to reduce the prison population. The State Department of Corrections and Community Supervision website outlines their COVID-19 protocol. Quote, our process identifies patients who are ill and require special monitoring and care and isolates those who create the greatest risk of transmission to others. Asymptomatic patients who wear a mask and follow social distancing and hand hygiene guidelines have minimal risk to others. A nurse will swab the individual, and that swab is then sent to an authorized lab. Unquote. Martin Langori says that while those efforts are appreciated, immediate action from Hochul could make the difference between life and death. This week, we share an interview we did with reporters Lauren Bavis and Jake Harper. They're co-hosts of a podcast called Sick, the second season of which focuses on healthcare issues in the Indiana women's prison. As they share on the show, the arrival of the coronavirus pandemic led them to research IWP and how healthcare was being managed within. However, as they developed their communication with incarcerated and formerly incarcerated people, much more came up than just the pandemic and we'd like to give a content warning for mentions of suicide and assault. 
My name is Lauren Davis. Uh, I'm an investigative reporter at WFYI, which is Indianapolis's public media station. And I report for SideFX Public Media, which is a public radio reporting collaborative based at WFYI. And we report on public health issues in the Midwest. And I'm also the co-host of Sick, which is a podcast about what goes wrong in the places meant to keep us healthy. Uh, and I'm Jake Harper, and I have the exact same job that Lauren just describes, and I'm the other co-host of Sick. Sick is a podcast. So we, in 2019, our station was given the opportunity to start a podcast with with the help of PRX, which is a, a public radio a nonprofit organization. And so we devoted six months basically to to being trained in how to do this project, which, you know, in some ways it's similar to, to the radio work that we already do in that it's an audio product, but in a lot of ways is very different in that it, you know, we have unlimited time to tell stories and that, you know, allows you more creative freedom in the, in the storytelling process and how you deliver information. Um, and so we, we spent a lot of time sort of developing a show and, you know, working on prototype episodes and, and eventually just put out this season one of, of what we ended up calling Sick. And it is a seasonal serial show about what goes wrong in the places meant to keep us healthy. And even though maybe it's not the first place you think of uh, when you think of somewhere meant to keep you healthy, uh, that includes prisons. So the season stems in part from this idea that Jake and I report on healthcare and healthcare challenges in the US and even though healthcare is something that we all need, it's not a right except for one group of people and that's incarcerated people, people who are in jail and prison because courts have said that these are people who can't go and seek care on their own. Um, so the jail or prison has to provide it or else it's cruel and unusual punishment. And even with this, this mandate that jails and prisons have to provide healthcare, people in prison in particular, um, that was the area we chose to focus on prisons rather than jails, often say that they don't feel like they get the care that they need. And this is a population that has a lot of health challenges. Um, and that really kind of came to light, especially in 2020. And Jake started doing reporting on that, um, that I think he can talk a little bit more about. Yeah. So when the pandemic started in, you know, in the United States in March of 2020, we were both working on a, a season two of Sick that was totally different than, than what we ended up putting out in late 2021. So we, we were basically told we needed to go back to doing, you know, we needed to report on the pandemic. We, we needed to hit pause on production of the podcast. And because of the timing of, of it all, we were both sort of, uh, we were coming in late to, to reporting on what was going on with coronavirus. And one thing that seemed undercovered to me was what was going on in our state prisons in Indiana, you know, because of the nature of the virus and, and how quickly it was spreading, everyone sort of knew that that it would eventually hit the prison population pretty hard if it if it hadn't already. And so, you know, given the tight quarters that everyone lives in and uh, their inability to, to socially distance or even, you know, maintain hygiene to a certain extent, I figured it would be a place to start looking. And, and, and it turned out that that it was, you know, I kept I started reporting on this in March, basically, and it and everything that I heard made me realize, I guess, that the prisons weren't necessarily taking the precautions that the CDC said that they should be taking, according to the to what people inside were telling me. And 
you know, the, in some cases, the, the stories that I heard of, of the care that people received were, were pretty horrifying. The people's families often had no idea what was going on behind the prison walls. And so the, the pandemic itself was, was sort of a problem on the surface, but, but at the same time, I kept hearing about other healthcare issues, longstanding issues that, that existed at the prisons that in some cases the pandemic made worse and in other cases it was entirely unrelated, but, but it seemed like prisons was something that we should take a look at for the podcast. And so when, when it came time for Lauren and I to go back to reporting on the podcast, we decided to pursue a, an entirely different season and, and focus on prisons. So, I mean, we know that women uh, are growing segment of the incarcerated population and their voices and stories are often undertold in media in general. And I think Jake started reporting on issues that were specifically happening at the Indiana women's prison during the pandemic. And he developed a really deep well of women who were in the prison and who had been formerly incarcerated at IWP who were wanting to share their experiences. And so what we know about the Indiana women's prison, um, is that it is in Indianapolis. It's a maximum security facility. And it's the facility in Indiana where women with the most medical needs live. It has room for more than 700 women. And the big one of the big issues of making the podcast was that we were denied access to a lot of things, uh, whether that was records um, that we requested about care that certain people had in the prison. Um, and that was also uh, being able to tour the facility. We wanted to go inside the Indiana women's prison and see the place that so many women were describing to us. Um, and we weren't able to do that. We actually drove to the prison and stood in the parking lot for about 10 minutes to even kind of try to describe the outside of it uh, to our listeners, the brick buildings and the tall fences and the manicured lawns. And we were thrown off the property after about 15 minutes. So, I mean, and that was a huge challenge in making the podcast is how do you describe for someone who maybe has never been in a prison period, um, this very specific place, if you can't go inside it yourself. So we really relied on these many, many, many women who you, some of them, you even don't even get to hear from in the podcast. There were just too many people who had too many stories that we talked to, but they kind of painted a place for us that in a lot of ways was, you know, traumatizing. It was a place that they went to, to deal with, you know, some of the most traumatic things that had happened in their lives. And then while they were there, they were traumatized on top of that. I think one of the, one of the things that's striking too, is that Indiana as a, you know, the state really likes to brag about certain aspects of the Indiana women's prison. They have a coding program for women there. They have a, a sort of a unique program in that they they house pregnant women there and, and allow them to, you know, give birth while they're incarcerated and in some cases keep their child with them in prison for, for the first couple of years of their life. There seemed to be sort of a disconnect between the picture that the state presents publicly and what we were hearing from the women who lived there. God, like Lauren said, we heard so many different stories from people. I think, I guess one example that that sort of sticks sticks in my mind right now is that you know we we talked to this this woman named Lori Logan who served as what's called a suicide companion inside. So often, you know, there are a lot of people in prison who are dealing with with mental health issues, including suicidality. 
people who may want to self-harm. And those people are often sort of separated from the rest of their prison population, put on their own, given a different outfit and and sort of put in a, a cell in the same place that they put people in solitary confinement. And, and they have someone keep watch over them. And instead of that being a mental health professional or a correctional officer, which is which is what it used to be several years ago, the, the state of Indiana has decided to use other people who are imprisoned to, to do that job. So, you know, another incarcerated woman will sit outside the cell, keep notes on what, what the person inside is doing. And as a part of that, those women, those suicide companions are often forced to see some very difficult things. So Lori Logan, who we talked to, she arrived at the Indiana Women's Prison and, and joined this program because she wanted to help, you know, she wanted to do a job that, that gave her a sense of responsibility. She wanted to, to sort of give back to the community that she was living in. And over time, she witnessed some, some very traumatic things. You know, she saw people cut themselves. She saw people ingest their own bodily fluids. She saw people sort of banging their heads against the wall, pulling their hair out, you know, and we, these are stories that we heard repeatedly from, from different people. And she had to sort of inhale tear gas when, when guards went in to subdue those women who were, who were harming themselves. And women who are in prison, as Lauren alluded to earlier, they are dealing with trauma from their lives when they are sent to prison. In a lot of cases, the, the trauma that they experience outside of prison is, is directly what led them to prison. So for them to then be subjected to further trauma is, is really sort of horrific. And what we heard from Lori and, and other people we talked to is that in different periods throughout their incarceration, there would be times when they needed to take a break from being a suicide companion. Either there were too many shifts because there weren't enough companions to keep watch over these women, or there were time periods when there were a lot of women who needed to be watched or some combination of the two. And when they went through these very stressful periods, they were told that they had to do it and they weren't given the sort of psychological support that they needed. They weren't allowed to take breaks. And, and Lori, she quit multiple, she, I mean, she threatened to quit once and, and eventually she, she quit for good and, and sort of stormed off, but they were basically threatened with punishment. If they didn't do this job, we, you know, we reached out to the state about this, the state, I would say disputes that characterization, but, but we heard it from enough people that we felt comfortable reporting it. And we obviously included the state perspective in that, but, but that's one example of something that sort of, you know, seems especially harsh about living there. And, and like I said, these are, these are women who, who need space to, to sort of heal from the trauma that they have already and not necessarily be exposed to, to new things. The reason behind using other incarcerated folks to do suicide watch is complicated. I think we have a lot of questions about why the state of Indiana and the Indiana Department of Corrections runs its prisons the way that it does. And they refuse to be interviewed on tape for our podcast or to answer many of our questions. We were able to email them some questions that they chose to answer or answer in part of and others they didn't. But we know we, we spoke to someone who helped implement the, the suicide companion program in 2006 after Indiana had had three suicides in, in one month, which was a lot at the time. And this sort of seemed like part of a, of a reaction to that. The prison kind of, this uh, man who helped implement it gave a couple different reasons about why they did it. One was that it saved a lot of money. They were having correctional officers serve as the people who were watching over people on suicide watch. Um, and that was, you know, really, really expensive in, in terms of overtime pay. And so 
using other incarcerated people saved in you know the case of one prison we found more than $100,000. But they also said that it gave the, the people who were participating as suicide companions a, a sense of purpose. It was something that they were able to give back to their community. People we spoke to who were former companions like Lori said that they felt like they were being trusted. And this was after you know spending time in prison and jail and being treated like a prisoner. But then it almost seems like the prison took advantage of that and had these women kind of be pushed way past the limits of what they were able to give while they were working in many cases, yeah, on their own mental health and well-being and coming to terms with why and for how long they were going to be in prison. Suicide Companions are implemented statewide. It's a, it's a prison-wide program. It is run a little bit differently in every prison. And we don't know exactly what that encompasses since we didn't dive as deep into men's facilities as we did into the Indiana women's prison in particular. But it is it's run a little bit differently in every facility. On the personal side of things, I have been at at the radio station at WFYI for seven years now, and my early reporting focused a lot on opioid addiction. When I first started, there was there was an HIV outbreak in Scott County, Indiana, that more than a couple hundred people ended up with HIV as a result of injection drug use, and that sort of led me down the path of of reporting pretty exclusively on addiction and Medicaid and and sort of these public health issues that that affect people from sort of the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum. And obviously opioid addiction, and in, in addition to being a disease, the behaviors associated with that disease are, are criminal. The drugs are illegal, you know, syringes in Indiana are illegal. And at the time, you know, there weren't syringe exchange programs and, and things like that. And so I've always sort of had it on my radar to sort of steer more heavily into the criminal justice side of things, because it it has always struck me, obviously, you know, it strikes a lot of experts this way too, but it's always struck me as odd that we criminalize a disease. It's long been accepted that addiction is the result of changes in the in the human brain that cause people to do things that ignore consequences. And so if you have a disease like addiction, you know, the consequences associated with that are not going to deter you from engaging in drug use. And so that sort of disconnect has always interested me. And I've, I've always wanted to, to go more into criminal justice reporting and prison reporting. And, and the pandemic presented an opportunity for me to do that in, in the most horrifying way, obviously. But it seemed like a way for me to start looking at prisons more heavily and, and sort of find the areas of overlap between public health and criminal justice that, that I've been interested in for, for a long time. As someone who who hadn't gone super hard into prison reporting before, you know, I was shocked by everything from the price of a single message to send to someone in prison. You know, we we're using this online system. It's called Connect Network. There's a there's a contractor called GTL, which I think just changed its name. Actually, I think each message that you send costs, Lauren, you may know, twenty seven cents, twenty eight cents, something like that. But those are just emails. So I mean, they're you know they're sent through this 
obscure separate system, but but you're sending an electronic message through this company and it gets to someone on the other end, hopefully. Yeah, sometimes it is censored or not sent in the end because someone, someone gets in the way. But we're talking about people who make pennies an hour for the work that they do in prisons and often cases are, you know, they're poor before they get to prison. Their families don't have money to spend like this. So that that's one thing that sh that still shocks me is, is, you know, how much money people have to spend just to communicate, just to talk to their loved ones. I think phone calls are similarly outrageously expensive. And that is one thing that, that still surprises me and still sort of boggles my mind that that goes on. All the stories that we include in the podcast too are things that surprised us and things that we didn't and and you know for the most part didn't know like we didn't we didn't go into this podcast thinking we we're going to report on a bunch of stuff that people already know. I'm sure there is a, a fair amount of that in in the show, but but I think the way that people are treated, both in terms of the women who are incarcerated there and even the staff, I think the way that they are treated, you know, very harshly in some cases, or, or this, you know, some staff that I talked to early on in my reporting said that they felt pressured to treat the women harshly. Like it was, it was part of the culture of the upper management to sort of steer people into that harsh treatment of the women who, who were living there. And in a lot of cases, it, it just sounded unnecessary. So my background is a little bit different from Jake's in that before I came to work at WFYI, I worked at a newspaper. And so while I, I was never a criminal justice reporter by any means, I wrote crime stories. And these are short stories that rely very heavily on police reports. They're stories that often have really early details. They don't tell a full picture of what's happened. They're sometimes stories that we don't follow through their full legal end. There are stories that include a very specific type of photo, and that photo is a mugshot. And I think right now, newspapers, radio stations, journalism in general is kind of going through a reckoning about this really harmful history of how we have presented stories about crime and punishment in our communities. And we're rethinking how we tell these really important stories. And so when we were talking about diving into talking about prisons and dealing with a formerly incarcerated and incarcerated population, I thought building trust with the people we talked to was going to be a really big challenge. I thought people who have experience with the justice system would be rightfully wary of someone who wants to stick a microphone in their face and ask them about the most traumatic time in their life. And so, I mean, a lot of the phone calls that we made to talk to people, I felt much more nervous than I have in, in lots of interviews before. But, you know, every single person we talked to was wonderful. They were really open and, and willing to share their stories with us. And we asked them hard questions and they answered them in, in ways that we didn't always expect. And, and I think that the way that we decided which stories we were going to tell in the five episodes of the podcast in part came from when people brought the same thing up to us without prompting over and over again. One of those things we talked about that was um, suicide watch and being suicide companions. Another thing was a story of a young woman who killed herself in the prison and her name was Prinsola Shields. And so a lot of people, when we asked them for stories, they wanted to talk about what their experience was like, you know, hearing about this, this woman who ended up hanging herself in a shower stall when prison staff left her alone and didn't monitor her the way they were supposed to. And there was a woman who we were talking to. Her name is Cynthia. And she had originally wanted to talk to us about 
what life is like in solitary confinement. And we spent a good amount of time talking to her about the really kind of petty reasons people can end up being secluded from the rest of the prison population. And and she, like a lot of other women, brought up Prince Ola's case and, and said that she knew what was happening because she was in a part of the prison where Prince Ola was brought having a meeting at the time that Prince Ola was brought there. And I just sort of asked offhand, oh, oh, and what was the meeting about? And she said, oh, I was meeting with an investigator because I was attacked by a guard. And I was sort of blown away by that because she just sort of dropped it into the conversation as if it was something casual. And instead, what it became was us spending a lot of time learning about what happens when correctional officers sexually abuse the women that they're charged with caring for. And so, so much of doing this season was sort of not being prepared for exactly what we would cover. And then when we learned something that sparked our interest, either because it was so shocking to us or we thought it was something that the average listener wouldn't know about life in prison, and then just pulling threads of trying to request as much information as we could about things like you know sexual abuse in prisons or what it takes to try to sue a prison when your loved one dies and you want to get justice for that. And everything that we found was was interesting. And part of the problem was we can only pack so much into the podcast. I think the thing that we went into this season thinking about was what happens behind prison walls is everyone's business. We don't we don't get a glimpse into what happens very often because, you know, for one thing, it's it's purposely out of sight. That's, you know, it's part of the reason people are in prison. And then the other thing is that, you know, the state, in this case, the state of Indiana doesn't really want to publicize what's going on be- behind prison walls. You know, the state puts out a lot of press releases about people getting awards and employees of the month and things like that. But the treatment of the people inside is not really highlighted in in a lot of cases. And and part of that is because, you know, journalists don't focus on it very often. And so what we wanted to do is sort of give a glimpse of what life is like behind bars and also explain to people why that matters to them. You, You know, and there's two sides of that. One is the sort of moral side or the sort of public interest side, which is that these are our people that live behind these walls. And regardless of what they've done, they're human beings. They're they're constitutionally guaranteed to a certain level of treatment. And we shouldn't, as a society, allow for inhumane things to happen. And then on the the sort of more pragmatic side, everything that happens behind prison walls is is very expensive. And that includes the health care that people get. And when healthcare goes wrong behind prison walls, it's care that's being outsourced to a private contractor and they are a for-profit entity. But on top of that, when things go wrong, that can result in lawsuits. And those are also very expensive for the state. And, and all of those things add up to tax dollars that you and I and everyone in the state are paying. And so we should take an interest in what happens. You can find Sick anywhere you listen to podcasts, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any major podcast platform. Uh, You can also go to our website, sickpodcast.org, where we have additional resources. We have reading lists that go along with the episodes. We have a guide to filing your own public records requests, if that's something you're interested in. And you can also listen to the first season of the podcast, which is an entirely different story about a former Indiana fertility doctor who used his own sperm to impregnate his patients and the generations of lives he affected.
Thanks to Lauren and Jake for talking with us. We'll have a link to their show on our website. This has been KiteLine. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. And if you want to financially support our work, you can become a supporter at patreon.com forward slash KiteLine Radio. Any funds raised beyond operating costs will be sent to folks on the inside. Please check out our new searchable website with hundreds of archived shows at kitelineradio.org. After a brief hiatus, we're happy to report that our prisoner call-in phone line is back. Folks on the inside or their outside friends and supporters can call 765-343-6236 to record a message to be played on the air. Please share this number widely and we'll try to answer and air all messages possible. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Thank you for listening.